Chapel Hill. I got to say, I'm still kind of reflecting on that worship that we were sharing. It was just powerful. When you see Abram lifting his hand up to slay Isaac and you're thinking, all I have is yours. It's a great image of that. Great image. Well, I welcome you to our third service of worship this weekend. Because last night we had our first Saturday night service. We had over 300 people that showed up there. We had some looky-loos who just wanted to come and see what it's going to be like, but we had a lot of people that don't come here. We had at least four families we know who don't go to church. And so uh, our prayers that, that the Lord would use that night to reach a whole new segment of, of his community, uh, we think that God is answering those prayers. You can pray that God will make the Memorial Chapel bigger because it's, uh, it was a whittle clouded, and we've got to figure that one out. But that's a nice problem to have, isn't it? A nice problem. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of last night. We thank you for the gift of this morning, for these dear souls who are here and eager to hear your word. Thank you for the worship we've enjoyed already. Thank you for the words of prayer over me. I, I treasure them. For apart from you, I can do nothing. And so I echo the words of James, and I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, and fill us all with your spirit, that we might receive your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we took our son Cooper back to Whitworth University. He's a sophomore there. And on the way, we stayed at a place near Sprague, the big thriving megapolis of, of, of Sprague. Uh, but there's a, there's a hunting lodge there that a friend owns and lets us use. And we love it there, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And one of our favorite things to do is to take the uh, quads, the, uh, the ATVs out, and just explore 50 square miles volcanic outcroppings and lakes. There are things that are our favorite, and every time we go, we want to check it out, like that old derelict shack that some guy built 150 years ago. It keeps getting worse and worse shape every time we find it. And then there's the, uh, the duck blind at Alkali Lake, made out of stone that's so beautiful. We love that. Rachel and I visited that. One of the things you have to be careful about, though, when you're exploring 50 square miles is not to get lost. That's a big chunk of land, and those ATVs go fast. And literally, I have been miles away at the end of the day when I thought I was somewhere. I wasn't anywhere close to where I thought I was, and it was dark before we finally found our way back home. So I've solved the problem. Here's what I've discovered I can do. If we drive up to the top of the highest hill that we can find, and if we look for the gas tanks over by the uh, Tokyo exit, look for the cell towers over by Sprague, Look for the trees behind us around 4th of July Lake and then aim for the solo cell tower in the distance. With all of those landmarks in place, if I aim for that cell tower, I'll get home. And we haven't gotten lost anymore since I figured this thing out. What we realized we had to do was we had to go high to get a better view. And that's exactly what we're doing this year in this journey. What is this called? The story. And that is what this is about. It's about going high... 30,000 feet, so we can get a better view of the whole scope of the story. I've clearly not done a very good job of explaining this to some of you, because someone came to me and said, why are we spending a whole year reading a book? Why don't we read the Bible? So let me take another run at it. This is the Bible. It's a little bit shorter than our Bible, but everything you find in here is taken right out of the text of the NIV, the New International Version right in front. It's arranged chronologically. It's written without verses. And so as you read it, it reads like a novel, but every word you're reading in there is right out. It is the Bible. I know it's only 400 pages, but we would do well to read 400 pages, don't you think? And so our goal is to spend a year reading through those 400 pages and looking for those landmarks. 
Those high points that kind of mark the destination so we will know what it means to go home. At the end of the year, you are going to be able to point those out. You're going to be able to see God's work that started in the earliest moments of creation last week. All the way to recreation and eternity on the other end of things. You're going to know the main characters, the main themes that keep recurring again and again. And something unique to what we're going to do that this doesn't talk about is we're going to be looking for the scarlet thread. What is the scarlet thread? Jesus. It's the appearance of Jesus throughout, throughout the story. Many of us assume that the first time we see Jesus is in Matthew when he is born. But as a matter of fact, what we're discovering is that we have glimpses, whispers, shadows of the Son of God that appear way, way back in Genesis chapter 1. We saw it last week, right? And in Genesis chapter 3. So at the end of this year, if you will do your homework, if you'll stick with us, if you'll be faithful, you'll be able to trace the grand arc of the story, and you'll be able to point again and again and again, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus. He didn't just show up. He was there from the very beginning, okay? So that's what we are about. We started last week in chapter 1 of the story. And it covers a massive amount of, 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 of stuff, doesn't it? Um, we talked about it in three acts. Creation, what's next? Fall and redemption. Say that with me. Creation, fall, and redemption. So what we're introduced to in Genesis, first of all, creation. Let me just... By the way, if you didn't hear this sermon, it is the foundation story for the rest of the story. You really need to hear it. So go home, download it on your magic box, and listen to it. Because you need this in order to understand the whole scope of the story. First of all is creation. God, for his own pleasure and purpose, the almighty, eternal God says, I'm going to make something. I'm going to make something out of nothing. And so he speaks, and boom, it comes into existence. That's how God creates. Everything he made was good. And then we come to the high point of creation. What's the high point of creation? Yeah, humanity. Point to the person next to you. Go ahead, I'm watching. Say, you are the high point of creation. Go ahead. Some of you wives I see are having a hard time getting those words out. You are the high point of God's creation. When we come to that point, suddenly we find God wanting to get his hands dirty, right? He wants to play in the mud and make a man. He wants to play with a bone and, and make a woman. And so you sense the pure delight of God. That's creation. God puts that... A couple in a paradise called Eden, and he enjoys them. We read that he walks with them in the cool of the day, every day. And there's this intimate and transparent relationship between God and his beloved high point of creation. And then, of course, the devil comes into the picture. He comes in in the shape of a, a form of a serpent, and he convinces Eve that God's holding out on her that he doesn't really love her, that he's trying to hold back the very best for himself, not wanting her to have all of the fun she really ought to have. She convinces Adam of the same thing. They eat a forbidden fruit, and of course, sin enters into paradise, and everything is turned upside down, and they are expelled from the garden. It's the darkest moment in the story of humanity. So that we call the fall. All right, so you have that. You have the high point of creation, and then boom, the fall. And then, gang, for the rest of the story, it is the arc of God's redemption, of how God steps in to restore his beloved, broken children back to relationship with himself. I told you last week, the three saddest words ever uttered by God, remember what they were? When when he was looking for Adam and Eve as they were hiding after they were naughty, what what does God say to them? Where are you? 
Do you hear the plaintive cry of the father? Where are you? Well, actually, we're going to hear that cry echo again and again and again from this moment all the way to the end of the story. Because the whole of the story is God's crying out to broken humanity. Where are you? Why are you running from me? Why are you turned your backs on me? I am not going to put up with this. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix it. That's the story. And this is what sets the stage for the rest of the story. So that's chapter one. Now, here's our moment of accountability. How many of you read chapter one last week? Raise your hand. All right, good job. Good job. There's some more back there. If you want to buy the book, you can pick it up. But good for you. Keep it out. Keep at it. It doesn't matter how you start. It's how you finish that that matters. So, So stay at it. This week, we come to chapter two. Another, it's a monolithic scope, swath of, 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 uh, of scripture. And when we come to this morning's chapter, and by the way, that's how it'll work. I'll start each week, I'll preach on what we're going to be coming to, and to kind of help set you up, tee, tee it up for you. And today we come to the beginning of God's plan to fix things, to redeem things. This is God's first step. And what we discover today is that God plans to build a great nation. He's going to call people to himself and build a great nation so that he can bless the world. Who was that nation? What what do we call that nation? The Jews, the people of Israel, right? God was going to call, form this great nation called the Jews, the people of Israel. And how is it that God is going to start that nation? Well, in a most unlikely way, through a most unlikely couple, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. When you think of God's story, Abraham is one of those monolithic peaks, one of the high points of the, of the story of, of God's salvation. His story takes up 24 chapters in the book of Genesis, 24. And just about the time you think that the Bible's done, done talking about Abraham, we come to the New Testament, we find his name in there 70 times. You, you need to understand, Abraham is the touchstone. It's where it all begins, the father of the nations. We were in Burien a couple of weeks ago. We were taking Rachel back because she's heading back to seminary. And uh, we went to see a friend. Every time we drove and turned a corner, we saw the name Ambom on some street sign. Ambom this, Ambom that. Found out that well, Ambom, Minister Ambom, was, was one of the founding fathers of the city of Burien. His fingerprints are all over that city. You can't go anywhere without hearing his name, seeing his name. Abraham is the same. His fingerprints are all over the story. You can't turn anywhere without seeing the touch of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. His name originally was Abram before God called him. And he was the first step in God's plan to restore the broken relationship. And it's, like I said, it's a massive story. We're going to look at two stories out of this story that you will be reading in the coming few days. We might summarize Abraham's important and incredible life with one word, faith. If you're going to pick a word to summarize Abraham's life, I think it would be faith. The story of Abraham is a man who had real faith in God. And uh, no matter, he believed in God, no matter how crazy God's call, no matter how crazy the circumstances, Abraham just kept on believing. And one of the most spectacular expressions of that faith comes in one of the most important passages in our Bible. So you ought to remember this is the ones you tuck away. Genesis chapter 12, because Genesis 12 is what we call the call of Abram. 
And uh, you can turn if you want, or you just listen as I tell you this story from God's Word. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed by you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. This is a story from God's great story. It is the, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed. So Abram is there. He's in Ur. It was just a, uh, a little town. And, and he has this call that God places upon his life. Out of the blue, with no announcement, with no introduction, the Lord God appears to him and said, Hey, I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to build a great nation out of your people. I'm going to bring great offspring from you. And through you, we're going to bless the whole world. And just in case Abram was wondering, was I, you know, was I drinking a little bit too much that night? Or I mean, was it what, did I hear God right? God takes him out in chapter 15 and does the same thing. Listen, God took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's a lot of offspring. There's quite a plan, starting with one couple. God is going to grow up a great nation of chosen people. Let's pause here. Why were they chosen? Why were the chosen people chosen? Is it because they could point at the non-chosen people like us and say, neener, 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 God likes me better than you. Was that the reason for the choosing? God chose them to bless them that they might bless the world. Genesis 12, 3 says, you, the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. God's chosen people were chosen that they might bless the world. By the way, that's the same thing for the church. You are called into the church of God that you might be a blessing. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for the world. So we have this great call. God chooses these people. And so now we get the first glimpse in Abram's story of how, of, of, of the scarlet thread, Right? How is this blessing going to come? This is going to come this way. God is going to grow up this great nation of people who will know who the one true God is, who will know how it is that they should live to please that God. And ultimately, through that bloodline is going to come the Savior Jesus, who will save his world and restore the broken relationship, the relationship that was broken way back at the fall. So right here we have the, the high point view of the story of Scripture. God calls Abraham to make a great nation, through whom? To send Jesus to save the world and to restore the relationship that was broken at the fall. That's the plan. It's a great plan, except you could not find worse candidates to do this plan. I, I love the way one pastor put it. One pastor suggested maybe God had a conversation with the angels. He said, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. This is my plan. I I love that world. I need to restore that world. So my plan is I'm going to have one couple. 
We're going to grow up an entire nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bless them, and I'm going to save them. Through that nation. And the angels cheered God on. Angels always cheer God on. That's their job. The angels cheer him on and say, great idea, God. How about that couple over there? The fit ones playing tennis. And God says, no, I'm, I'm thinking about this couple over here. And the angels say, the ones using walkers? Yeah, God says, that's the one. That's, that's the couple that I'm going to use. There are all kinds of reasons that God's plan doesn't make any sense. How old was Abram when he was called? 75. And they're not going to have a baby for 25 more years. You do the math. He was 75 years old. He and Sarah were infertile. They were barren. They weren't exactly proven that they had a good track record of nation building on their own. They had no babies. Nothing. Not to mention the fact they were idol worshipers. So let's just sum all of this up in God's great plan. It's to uproot an old, childless, pagan couple, send them on a road trip, not tell them where they're going to go, use them to form a nation that will become as numerous as the stars in the night sky so that they might bless the world. That's God's plan. Why would God do such a silly thing? Because he can. Why would God do such a thing? It makes no sense. Because he can, and only he can. When God does what is impossible for human beings to do, it is he who gets the glory. And this theme of God doing impossible things through unlikely people for his glory, you better pay attention because it's going to repeat itself again and again and again and again throughout all of Scripture. He never calls the hot shot. He always calls the losers to do his work. Think about it. Abraham was old. Isaac was insecure. Jacob was a con man. Leah was ugly. Read the Bible. She was. Joseph was a braggart. Moses stuttered. Gideon was afraid. Samson was arrogant. Rahab was a whore. David was a shepherd boy. And then an adulterer. And then a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. Mary was a teenager. John the Baptist. Well, he was just weird. Right? (laughs) He was just weird. You could always spot John the Baptist in the crowd. He was the one that had grasshopper legs stuck in his beard because that's what he ate, right? Grasshopper bed and, and honey sticking in his beard. Peter was a big mouth. Martha was a worry ward. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a sick. And Timothy was just a kid. One of the most amazing things about the arc of the story is this. God uses unworthy incapable, under-resourced, utterly inadequate people to accomplish his purposes. And why does he do it? Because he can. Only he can. Because he can. And it brings him glory. Do you see any good news in this story for you? This means that you... And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and every you out here who is saying, I don't know enough, 
I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not cute enough to do anything great for God. God is saying to you, good news, it isn't about you. It's about me. And when I call you to do something, I will give you everything you need to do it. Everything, I promise, says the Lord God. That's good news, isn't it? So what was Abram's response to this incredible call? It is one of the great responses. He had faith. He said he believed God. We turn to, to, uh, to Genesis fifteen six. We read, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram was made right with God in that moment. Not because of who he was, not because of who he, what he knew, not because of what he was going to do. He was right with God because he believed God. It was all God's plan, all God's initiative, all God's salvation. And Abram just received it and believed it. And that, beloved, is real faith. Faith is a very popular Christian word. We use it a lot. You want to see the uh, simplest definition of faith that you might find in the Bible? Take a look at this verse. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. Do you see the verse of faith there? I told you last week about the three saddest words God ever uttered. Here are three of the greatest, most profound, most faith-filled words ever uttered. Do you see see it right there? So Abram left. So Abram left. He remember he was he was comfortable in Ur where he was living. He had a nice little house on the river. He had a big family, had a good business, lots of money. He had plenty of idols to take care of the religious needs of his life and then comes along Yahweh and says, "I want you to leave all of this behind. Everything you know, everything you own, everything you have, everything you worship, everything you believe, leave it behind." And follow me. And the next words we read. So Abram left. Will you ever find a greater expression of faith than that? He said, just to make it fun. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going to go. Just start walking. And Abram's breathtaking response. So Abram left. He acted on God's promise against all odds, against all hope, against all common sense, against all family pressure, against all cultural pressure. He acted on God's promise. He obeyed. That is faith. Obeying God because you trust his promise is faith. We Christians have turned faith into something that we know, into a head thing, something up here. Not something that we do. Which is why there are some here in this room that can say that they believe in Jesus. And yet you still cling to your bitterness, to your gossipy behavior. Because you don't really believe what God has said about forgiveness. There are some here who, who claim to believe in Jesus and yet they still cling to their money. Because you don't really believe what God says that this is my money. And that I want you to be generous with it. You don't really believe it. There are some here who say they believe in Jesus, but have thrown in the towel on their marriage instead of fighting for it. Because they don't really believe that God is bigger than their marriage problems. 
You fill in the blank. You say you believe, and yet... Real faith isn't what you know. Real faith isn't what you believe. Real faith is what you do with what you say you believe. And faith isn't believing that God's going to give you everything you ask him for. There are some preachers that will preach that. You know what they call that? Heresy. Because it's making you God and God your your serving boy. That's not what real faith is, but what real faith is, is believing that God will give you everything he promises to give. And then you step out in obedience as if it were true. So Abraham left. That was faith. That's the image of faith. You claim to be a believer, and yet there's something that God is asking you to do, or there's something God is asking you to stop doing, something that seems frightening or impossible, or you just don't want to do it. And so you refuse. You say no to God. What kind of faith is that? You know what they call that? Hypocrisy. Real faith is acting on what we say we believe. God called, so Abram left. That is great faith. But you know what? We ain't seen nothing yet because there's one more part of the story I want to share with you. It comes in Genesis chapter 22. It's one of the most poignant and painful stories that you will find in the Bible. As you read on this week, you're going to discover, of course, God did keep his promise. You know, it was 25 years later, and there was a lot of convincing along the way, and a lot of fiddling around on their part trying to help God out. But 25 years later, Abram and Sarah, 190, they gave birth to their son. What was his name? Isaac, Isaac, say Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means in the language? Laughter, or he laughs. Can you imagine the delight of Abram and Sarah after all of these years, finally after decades of barrenness, after decades of promises that seemed ludicrous and hopeless, God kept his promise, and they laughed, they laughed. They laughed with delight at the goodness of God. They laughed at the miracle of birth. They laughed at the fact that at 190, they were becoming first-time parents. For those of you who are a little longer in the tooth, would you like to start over right now? You know, take your first child-bearing classes right now at 190? But there he was, Isaac. Laughter, the joy of their life and the hope of the nation. So imagine... Abraham's shock 15 years later about the age of some of you 15 year old Isaac when God comes to Abraham and says now I want you to take your boy the boy you love and I want you to take him up on the top of a mountain I will show you called Moriah and when you get him up there I want you to lay him on an altar and slay him as a sacrifice to me it's horrific isn't it We're actually told in the beginning that it was a test, but Abraham didn't know that it was a test. And all of the religions of the world expected this of their followers. All of the gods of the world's religions were bloodthirsty. They wanted human sacrifice. They wanted the firstborn child to be slain. His blood spilled, her blood spilled on an altar. That was what they expected. But surely not this God. Surely not Yahweh, not God of Abraham. Surely this was a different God. And of course, we know that our God does not want the sacrifice of babies. He hated it. And by the way, he still hates the sacrifice of babies. 
But that's because we've read the rest of the story. Abraham was in the start of the story. He didn't know the full character of God. He was still coming to know God. And so Abraham, when he was commanded to do what every other God in every other culture commanded their followers to do, he did it. He was going to take his son, lay him on the altar, and cut his throat. But can you imagine the, the pain of that journey? The devastating pain of that journey. Here was this long-awaited, long-promised gift from God, so precious that it made them laugh in their old age. Now God was going to take him away. And what about the promise of a great nation? Where would that go? Once again, Abraham demonstrates what real faith is. Faith is obedience. It is doing what God says. And so he took his son up there ready to do what God had called him to do. Later on, the writer in the Hebrews, thousands of years later, gives us an insight that we don't have when we're reading the story in Genesis. He tells us this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. So Abraham, in his great faith, said, all right, if I do this horrible thing, if I slay my son, God has promised, and so God can raise him back up to new life again, if that's what he wants to do. So you have one of the most dramatic accounts of faith that you'll ever find in the Bible. And it's been captured in what I think is one of Caravaggio's most powerful paintings. Take a look at this. This is Caravaggio's, the slaying of Isaac. Just drink it in for a moment. There's Abraham. He's got his knife in hand. He's holding his child's head down, ready to, to, to slay him. And averting his gaze, turning his head away because he doesn't want to look into the eyes of his boy. He's about ready to raise the knife and slay the child. And then an angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham! Abraham! Notice he called out twice. These are 100-year-old ears. He wanted to make sure, actually 115-year-old ears. He wanted to make sure that he didn't make any mistake. He calls Abraham. He stays the hand of the executioner. And then we hear this wonderful pronouncement of faith that from, from the angel speaking for God. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. In itself, it's a powerful story of obedience in the early stages of God's salvation history, isn't it? But what else is this story? Yes! Who said that? Good, exactly right. Always a safe answer, but it is certainly true here. This is the scarlet thread, is it not? Will you ever find a more poignant example of the scarlet thread than right here? The sacrifice of Isaac was only a test, we are told. But thousands of years later, the story would be repeated. A father would lead his son up onto the Mount Moriah. An innocent son who was also the hope of the world, the hope of the generations. And the father would be silent as the executioners lifted their hands to take the life of his boy. And the angels would watch in wonder, waiting, springing, waiting to spring for the one word that the father would, would say to stop the hand of the executioner. To rush in as they had on Mount Moriah thousands of years before. They were ready to go. And then to the angels' eternal amazement, the word never came. And the executioner's hand came down. And the beloved, innocent hope of all nations was slain. Right here, 
22 chapters into the story, we see that foretold. We catch a glimpse of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And ironically, what would end up being the darkest day in human history, or appear at least to be that, the death of Jesus, it turned out, in fact, to be the fulfillment and the promise of God that he gave to Abram that day in Ur, when he said, by you, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. Here was the the fulfillment of that promise. The death of this descendant, by his resurrection, the whole world would be blessed. It wasn't a test. It wasn't a test on Calvary. It was the real thing. Our Heavenly Father, just like Abram, was not willing to withhold his precious son so that he might rescue his precious daughter. His precious daughter. His precious son. Did you realize that? Did you know that God's plan to save you was hatched in the mists of prehistory? And we catch a glimpse of it. We hear a whisper of it. 22 chapters into the great story. All along, God planned to save you through the gift of his sacrificial son. And if we know that, if we understand that, and if we really believe it like Abraham believed, then how can we do anything but live lives of obedient faith following the God who always, 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 always keeps his promise. Hallelujah. Let us pray. This is breathtaking to us, God. Breathtaking the courage and faith of a father who would slay his beloved child because he heard you tell him to. I don't know if I would believe it. I would doubt the voice. I don't know if I would trust you enough, yet Abraham did. And not only do we see great faith there, we see the promise, the echo of you who would one day do the very same thing. And this time the slayer's hand would not be held, but the son would be killed. Ah, but three days later, you crushed the head of the serpent. And so we sing hallelujah. We declare you are good and glorious. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. What a good, promise-keeping, world-blessing God you are.